Hello ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. My name's Dave and I'll be your host this evening. I'm really pleased that you could all join me here downstairs at the Leicester Square Theatre. So next we have uh, a story from Tony Higson, who I first saw at the True Storytelling Night Spark London, a night that you should really all check out. Uh, and you can find out about that at www.sparklondon.co.uk. Uh, please welcome Tony to the stage. In fact, he's here. Hello there, everybody. Hello, the audience. Hello, the listeners out there in Podlands. Too tight to buy a ticket, you free old bastards. But uh, storytelling, apparently it's uh, cathartic. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds good, doesn't it? Basically, a problem shared is a problem two people have got. So uh, it was 1996. Uh, I didn't have a job. I was living in London. My girlfriend had just finished hers and gone back to Newcastle. And I thought, oh, fuck that, I'm not going to Newcastle. Um, and then I had to move out of my flat, so I had like six weeks. So I was like, what should I do? And then I thought, oh no, I'll join the circus. This makes perfect sense. <laughs> so that's what I did. Uh, I joined Zippo's Circus, and they've got a travelling circus school. You travel all around, learning different things like uh, fire eating, knife throwing, and trapeze, which was what I tried to specialise in. But because I was 27 when I started to train, I was a bit stiff, so I was a bit crap, basically. That, what can I say? I just, anyway, I was sharing a caravan with a bloke, this uh, Welsh juggler called Toby. We called him Toby Jug. And he stunk, and he smoked a lot of dope, and our caravan stunk because, basically, it was my fault, really, because I was so unfit, my arms were really achy doing all this trapeze, so every night I had to cover myself with deep heat. Just so I could sleep because I had so much pain. So you can imagine what the caravan smelled like. It was deep heat, lager, dope, and Lynx uh, deodorant to try and get rid of the smell of the deep heat. But obviously it didn't work. So I uh, also had a, uh, an Italian student called Brian. Flying Brian, we used to call him after he fell off the trapeze. And uh, there was a few injuries. We had a good few injuries while we were training there. Uh, Toby set himself on fire. <coughs> I set myself on fire. Um, Brian fell off the trapeze a few times. And, but the best injury I had was uh, I was standing on top of this sporting horse trying to do this like, really shit clown routine. And I had to stand my legs open like this. And the idea was Toby, who was quite tall, I don't know why they picked him, he had to jump through my legs. He bounced on the trampoline, jumped through my legs. That seems quite simple. He's fucking about six foot tall, so every time he jumped through my legs, he'd kick us quite violently in the bollocks. <laughs> and then, after about the third time, the thing about getting kicked in the bollocks, after a while, it, it starts to grate on you in the north. <laughs> so I, I just said, oh, fuck this shit. I'm not doing it anymore. And I had a big argument with a clown who was trying to teach me. He says, yeah, you should be in the circus. Blah, blah, blah. So I thought, oh, fuck this. And I, and I left the circus. I ran away from the circus. <laughs> But it didn't last for very long. About six months later, I was a bit bored, so I joined the circus again. <laughs> this was a different circus called the Foolhardy Folk Circus. Now, the clue, the clue's in the title of Foolhardy Folk, but obviously. Anyway, there was two bosses in charge of the circus, Cosmo the Clown, and there was another clown called Joe Fool. Now, clowns, it's, it's true, they're all like basically miserable bastards. <laughs> and uh, I, I managed to make it worse for some, some reason. Um, well, actually, I'll tell you why I made it worse. One night during the act, uh, Joe Fool was standing at the knife-throwing board, 
And uh, I wasn't really concentrating. And, like, it's one of them things you're supposed to like pay attention, really. And uh, I threw four knives down one side of him. What he was supposed to do was move across to the other side of the board. But he didn't for some reason, and I never noticed. So when I threw the knife, I threw it across his body at a 45 degree angle, which sort of messes things up. And the fact that his shoulder was in the way didn't help. So anyway, the knife hit him in the shoulder and it bounced off. It went really quiet, fully enough. Just be like this, yeah. And then I was like, oh. Because the thing is, the, the worst thing about it is, I still had another three knives left in my hand. <laughs> and everybody was like looking at me. So I, like, I still had to throw the other three. And then uh, I sort of slumped off the stage. And then when I got backstage, he was gone. I'm like, where the fuck's he gone? And he'd gone to hospital because when the knife bounced off him, it, it, it cut through his jacket and his shirt. And he needed like five stitches in his arm. And I was like, where's he gone? But the thing is, right, this is, this is what sort of person he was. When he went to hospital, he didn't bother to get changed out of his clown costume. He didn't take his makeup on. He, he kept his full clown costume on. It's just showing off, really, to be honest. And when they put him on the, on the, little, um, the little wheelchair, he kept his big clown shoes on. You, see, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just showing Anyway, the next day, he sort of like wasn't talking to us a bit, and I thought, mm -hmm. But uh, eventually, we managed to sort of like, you know, we're on speaking to more or less than a fellow with Cosmo, who was the other clown. And uh, he was a bit of a pain in the arse, to be honest. And uh, I had to do this, this bit in the routine where I would lie on a bed of swords with a little bed of nails on top. And it was his job to pick a volunteer out of the audience. Normally, they would just like pick a small child out the front, the front <laughs> row, you know. And one night, I was on the bed of nails, I was thinking, fucking get on with it. And he was saying, you sir, do you want to come down? And I was like, looking, thinking, what's he doing? Yeah. Normally, I'm like a small child. And when I seen at the back of the audience, it was like the world's fucking fattest man. <laughs> and he stood up, and I'm just thinking, what the fuck's going on? Yeah, and he started moving down through the crowd, pushing little small children out. <laughs> and then eventually he came to the ring, and he put one foot on us, and it, you know, like that sound an accordion makes when all the airs <laughs> squeezed out of it. He put one foot on us, like, <laughs> and then he put his full weight on us. I was trying to smile, you know, because I, I thought, you know, like, try and keep up appearances. I was like, yeah, get off now. But fucking hell, he must have weighed about 13 stone. Cosmo was holding his hand to keep him balanced. He started talking to this blog. He was saying, oh, what are you doing here? Are you, are you local? Are you know, like, fucking get off. <laughs> and uh, eventually, the blog got off, and I was all had loads of little holes in his nut, and that. Uh, Anyway, four years later, the novelty of the circus wore off. I did, about, uh, I did about two and a half thousand shows, and then one day I was like, oh, you know, I didn't like living in a caravan anymore. It's boring. So I, I left the circus, and um, I, I'm trying to think, what, what is the moral of this story? Um, but to be honest, there is no moral of the story. And I was just thinking about what, what have you learned from this story? And it's a bit like life, fuck all. To be honest, you've, you've learned nothing. But uh, hopefully I've learned something. I'm not sure what it is. One day I might find out. But uh, I start a new job in six weeks' time. I'm, I've become a professional blackjack player. So that's my uh, new new job, a sensible job. You know what I mean? Not such a stupid like a circus. So that's that's uh, that's the end of my story, ladies and gentlemen. And I hope you can take something from that this evening. I'm not sure what. But, uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So, <laughs> if 
anybody has an, any idea what they've learned, you know, go and, go and find Tony Lay and, and tell him. So now we're going to have Louise Adams reading The House That Jack... Is that about right? I'll yes. take that as a yes. Um, hi, my name's Louise. I'm here to tell you a story. Um, my mum asked me to tell you this story, and since she died, I feel like it's something that I really have to do. Um, she had a stroke, um, and after her stroke, she was left with um, cerebromedular spinal disconnection, which is known as locked-in syndrome. Um, it meant that she couldn't speak, she couldn't eat or move, um, and although her mind was working completely fine, she was effectively trapped in her own body and she spent the last couple of years of her life in hospital. Um, however, she um, did learn to communicate through blinking. Um, we would read the alphabet to her and she would um, indicate the letter by blinking and she wrote this story, um, which I'm going to tell you now. Um, so these are her last words. She couldn't speak, but this is her voice. The house that Jack built. The bedroom is our den. The carpet is the softest you've ever felt beneath your feet. Years we spent saving up for it. We argued a bit about the colour, but in the end he agreed that beige was less risky than cream. It infuriated him, the idea that we'd have something that wasn't perfect in our lives. Sometimes I think I can feel it on my toes, even though I couldn't feel it now if you wrap me up in it. Jack always said a bedroom should be a place you'd be happy to be trapped in if it came to it. You don't want to be sick in a house you hate, he used to say. <coughs> I don't suppose he ever imagined that either of us would be this sick. He liked to be prepared for the worst, though. This is a man who insisted on keeping an apocalypse cupboard. That's actually what he called it. It was full of cans of things we wouldn't normally eat. Tinned peaches, rice pudding, sardines. I used to donate some of it secretly when they were collecting for food parcels from the church. I float around the house on the loneliest days, like an old lost ship. It's amazing what you can recall when recall is all you've got. It feels more real than reality most of the time. The slide of the bathroom door followed by the clink of the lock, the creak on the fifth stair, the photo of Louise above the hall table. We have to sell it now. What choice is there? You can go anywhere in your head, but I always end up at home. I can't resist it. The alternative is reality. Mint custard walls and thin pink curtains. Nurses I can't ask to speak more quietly, and the towering shadow of the drip beside the bed. My living room is my favourite place in the world. The cherry mantelpiece, hand-carved. It took him years. I didn't think he'd finish it. And then it was my birthday, probably about six years after he'd started it. I'd gone to my mother's for a few days, and when I got back, there it was. A great roaring fire framed in the surround like a painting. The look on his face. You could tell it was worth all the splinters, those long Sundays locked in the garage. Jack busied himself with the dining room after my stroke. He told me that himself. Not that he thought I could hear him, Talk to her, the doctor said, and I could almost hear him rolling his eyes. He was always like that. We had a cat years ago and he refused to speak to her. What's the point in talking to something that doesn't understand you, he'd say. I'm here, I screamed over and over again. 
please find me, I'm here. But he never did. I thank God for small mercies. I know that room better than I know the back of my own hand. I can visit it any time. He even made the curtains, would you believe? Not many people can say their husbands made their curtains. I chose the fabric, of course. You can't trust a man with fabric. He only end up copying their mothers. He wanted this house to be his, ours. I used to joke that it would never be finished, that as soon as we got anywhere near to finishing it, he'd take it all apart and start again. It wasn't all that much of a joke. Louise says he never finished the dining room. She can't bear to go round. It's like watching your childhood crumble, she says. I asked her if she'd wanted to live there. It's all paid off, you see, but she just wants it gone. I'd like to know that one of us could still live there, but, well, I understand. In the end, the less he believed I could hear him, the more he'd talk. It's like he became desperate, as though he'd run through his can't talk to things that don't understand barrier and come crashing out the other side. <coughs> then he was talking to me more than he would, would have if he thought I was conscious. He said the house felt enormous without me, like a haunted old mansion, he said except the ghosts are in my head. I'd will my hand to reach out and touch him, anything to let him know, but nothing would move. He was unravelling, and I was a sodding statue. We understood one another, he said once, and then there was a silence thick as smoke. When he breathed in, it was like he was sucking all the air out of the room. You understood me like no one else could, he said eventually, and now you don't even know I'm here. I'd have sold my soul and his to let him know. Inside I was tearing at my skin to be let out, but on the outside nothing showed. They didn't tell me for months. Well, they didn't know I was in there, did they? It was an agency nurse who picked up on the blinking. It takes a fresh pair of eyes sometimes. The problem is, this thing's so rare. It was too late by the time they realised. Much too late. The last day I saw him must have been a Sunday, because Songs of Praise was on the telly. The telly's on all day. I suppose they think it fills the silence. No one asks me what channel I would like. He looked worse than I'd ever seen him. Didn't look like he'd washed in days. He cried. He actually cried. The first tear in 37 years of marriage and I couldn't even bloody wipe it for him. And then that was it. He never came back. I visit the house every day from the inside of my head. Only instead of looking out at the street, I look in at our lives. It's perfect when I'm awake, but when I'm asleep, things happen. Dreams are a curse. You can't control them. The wallpaper peels. Plaster falls from the ceiling like dandruff. His mantelpiece is cracked and mildewed. I walk around calling his name, and then I wake hot and frightened, dying to sit up and catch my breath. But I lie, corpse still, and stare at the hospital ceiling, a sinister crack creeping above my bed. I was as good as dead when he thought I was a vegetable. He was all on his own, and there was nothing he could do about it. Jack needed to be in control, always did. I knew before they told me, you couldn't miss something like that. Louise just went silent. 
She was always the one who was good at talking to me, keeping me up to date on what was going on, telling me funny stories about people at work or giving me the latest instalment on the neighbours. The first day she came in and didn't say our word, I knew it had to be her dad. She just held onto the bedclothes and screwed up her lips. When they realised I was functioning, mentally I mean, one of the nurses told me. Louise wasn't up to it. Tablets apparently, massive overdose. They said there was a tally chart, how many had taken, what kinds. Only Jack would keep a running total, only Jack. Now this is all I have, this place in my head, the place my Louise grew up. This is the house that Jack built. It's all that's left of him now. So that story was written by Jenny Adamthwaite. And you can read a lot more of her fiction and follow her blogs at www.jadamthwaite.co.uk. jadamthwaite.co.uk. And you can follow her on Twitter at jadamthwaite or jadamthwaite, as I like to say it. <laughs> Louise Adams is a performer with the Big Wheel Theatre Company and a freelance workshop leader. She, her current projects include Les Raconteurs, a storytelling events in French and Spanish, and monthly French cabaret Soiree Pompette. Next, we have the very unusual storytelling partnership, the Twisted Twins. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you... Tilly. And Timmy. Twisted. <laughs> Yes, I know, there are women here. You're probably somewhere there's women. I know, I didn't mean to. I thought it was a gentleman's only tragedy evening. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> right, we're going to tell a story, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we've come here to do. We're going to do it, whether you like it or not. It's a story about the circus. Really? And Yes, we're going to tell the story about the circus, about two twins growing up in the circus, no, ladies no, and gentlemen. No, 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 not that story. Why not, Timmy? It's such a nice story. Two twins. She was the trapeze artiste extraordinaire, and he, he was the under-15s Northern European chainsaw juggling champion. <laughs> he was very good. Yes, yes, he was for a while, wasn't he, Timmy? <laughs> <laughs> Everything was very lovely in the circus where they grew up until Hermon, the strong man, turned up. He was a cad too. But he had lovely arms though and, and he fell in love with me. Her! Fell in love with her. And her, the silly girl, she fell in love with him too. Yes, and it was marvellous because he loved me. It was very good and everything was marvellous and they were going to be so happy together. But he fell in love with their mother too, didn't but he? It wasn't love. Anyway, <laughs> yes, he was a little bit intimate with Mother, it's true. <laughs> but he loved me, Hermon, the strong man. Her, he loved her. And what did you do, Timmy? He didn't mean it to happen. What did you do? What did he do? What did the boy do <laughs> in the story about the circus? He, he, 
He told the father. He did tell the father, didn't he, Timmy? <laughs> what happened next, Timmy? Not what he expected. Really? Well, their mother, she was trampled by an elephant. <laughs> and what else, Timmy? And the strong man, well, he, he disappeared. And the lion was, was never hungry for weeks. <laughs> what else happened, Timmy? Their father was found hanging from the trapeze. By the neck? It's not one of the safety positions, is it, Timmy? He didn't know that would happen. No. Been punished enough ever since. Yes, well, he needs to be punished until he learns what he did wrong, doesn't he, Timmy? Don't we think, ladies and gentlemen, is it nice to punish revolting boys? <laughs> She doesn't think so. <laughs> oh, you're still going on about her, are you? We could sing her the song. Would you like to sing her the song? Yes, please. <laughs> Would you like the song, madam? <laughs> oh, she looks totally enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> sing her the song then, Timmy, if you're going to do that. Uh, I've only got one hand. <sighs> right. Let me hold her hand I bought my girl an apple We kissed beneath the band I bought my girl banana She let me hold her tight I think I'll bring a watermelon To my gal tonight my girl some ribbons, she wore them in her hair. I bought my girl some tassels, she wore them everywhere. I bought my girl some bunting, she hung it on the shelf. Tonight I think I'll bring some rope and let her hang herself. <laughs> I forgot how that ended. <laughs> yes, it's a shame really, isn't it, Tibby? I don't think women find suicide an aphrodisiac in general. Still smiling. <laughs> yes, I, I think she looks a little lonely. Well, maybe I can cheer her up. Would you, would you like to go out with my brother? No. <laughs> there we are, Timmy. What do you think about that? <laughs> Obviously nothing, ladies and gentlemen. He can't think anything without me. <laughs> So next up, we've got Tanya Hirschman, who's going to be reading from her new book, My Mother Was an Upright Piano, which was published on May the 3rd and contains 56 very short fictions. She's writer-in-residence at the Science Facility at the Bristol University and founder and editor of The Short Review. Uh, for more about all of that, go to www.tanyahirschman.com. And welcome, Tanya, to the stage. My mother was an upright piano, 
Spine erect, lid tightly closed, unplayable, except by the maestro. My father was not the maestro. <laughs> My father was the piano tuner. Technically expert, he never made her sing. It was someone else's husband who turned her into a baby grand. How did I know? She told me. During the last weeks when she was bent, lids slightly open, ivories yellowed. Every Tuesday, she said, midday, a knock at the door. The first time I froze. A grown woman myself, I listened to my mother talk and was back playing with dolls and wasps nests. I cut my visit short. My mother didn't notice. She'd already fallen asleep. The second time, I asked questions. Mother, I said, he came round on Tuesdays. How many? We are fallen stars, he said to me, whispered my mother, the formerly upright piano. You and me, he said, and then he would take my hand. She closed her eyes, smiled. My father, the tuner, never took anyone's hand. He was sharp, efficient. I searched my mother's face for another hint or instruction. Should I find myself one, I wanted to ask. A fallen star, a maestro, am I like you? But she had stopped talking and begun to snore gently. I sat with her, watching the rise and fall of her chest and the way her fingers fluttered over her lap, longing for arpeggios to dance across my stiffening keys. You. Could you welcome the Dave to the stage? It's <laughs> called The Floor. so fast 
it made our words go numb. It took our favorite memories, all the friends we'd forgotten. I never saw you grieving. Stand Up Tragedy hoodies, as modelled by me. Uh, T-shirts, as modelled by me. Uh, mugs, badges, and even underwear that you can buy for an extraordinarily pricey price from our website. Uh, or, if you prefer, you can donate some money uh, or to try and help us to make this the best night that we can do, or even break even, that would be always good. And uh, you can read and hear lots of past and future tragedy at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. So if you're a fan of the logo, go and check out www.shavenravendesigns.co.uk where you can find out how to get such a great logo and other brilliant design work done for you at a very reasonable price by a fantastic designer. We're releasing extracts uh, of the night and all of the nights as free podcasts available through iTunes. SoundCloud and Stitcher Smart Radio. The tragedy is over, so let's all leave together. The tragedy is over, so let's all leave together. I also wanted to just tell you about my other podcast, Getting Better Acquainted where I interview people that I know. Conversations that are really worth listening to. Go to www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk for more details, or you can find it on iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. The next stand-up tragedy live show is going to be at the Leicester Square Theatre on the 4th of June. Don't bother with the Jubilee. Come and have some tragedy.